Hey folks, before this episode of Podcast on Fire, I want to point you towards the store of our friends at Terracotta Distribution. At shop.terracottadistribution.com you'll find all titles from labels such as 88 Films, Arrow, Video, Cineasia, Third Window, Eureka and of course Terracotta's own line of Hong Kong, Taiwanese, Korean and Japanese titles. Find them at shop distribution.com and Podcast on Fire Network listeners get 10% off at checkout using the code ETERNALROSE. That's capital E-T-E-R-N-A-L, capital R-O-S-E, Eternal Rose, all in one word. Go to shop.terracottadistribution.com and now let's get on with the show. Welcome to a podcast on fire on the butterfly murders. Choi Hak enters the magical, mystical world of the Wuxia film. And the magical world of film. Making his debut with 1979's The Butterfly Murders. We're going to tell you all about it uh, in a fairly meaty little special on it here. So my name is Kennedy. And with me to tackle the beginnings of a Hong Kong cinema trailblazer. Bla- trail really a Hong Kong cinema madman. Self-admitted asshole. Not you, but Choi Hak. <laughs> and uh, with me to do that is uh, Paul Fox of the East Screen, the West Screen podcast. Hello, hello, and I can self-admit too. <laughs> we, uh, that story I always quoted is from uh, The Making of the Blade. He was interviewed on French DVD that um, he was uh, a complete madman making the blade, uh, running around shouting at everybody and grabbing the camera. I'll shoot that fucking thing. You know, I'll roll with the camera. And then uh, when all was said and done, when the movie finally wrapped, uh, you know, final shot he just stormed off and kept swearing and he kept telling he keeps telling that story and just minding to himself i can't help it i'm an asshole <laughs> i mean that that's how i get on set and i i can't help but to love him despite you know uh normally i don't like ty- the stories of tyrants like that with Choi Hak, just well he gets he gets the job done i suppose and uh, people come back to him they know he's uh he's a special one but uh but yeah here he is uh, making his debut uh and uh, we're gonna look at the career of Trahak uh, leading up to the Butterfly Murders and all of that. So um, let's uh, let's get on with it. A really brief uh, contact information. So podcastonfire.com is your place to catch all our shows, including the back catalogue of Podcast on Fire that covers Hong Kong cinema, new and old. And uh, find us on iTunes and Spotify and Stitcher and wherever you find podcasts. And uh, if you have any uh, feedback on the Butterfly Murders, if you've seen it, or what do you think of this uh, Choi Hak movies, do let us know. But uh, we can also chat about it on social media, such as our Facebook uh, group, on our Facebook group. And we're available on Twitter and Instagram as well. All those links are available on the main page. So I'm going to hand it over to Paul to uh, plug his uh, podcast archive, which uh, probably... uh, a Choi Hak mainland movie or two is in there. Like back in the day, where you uh, were you like um, reviewing Taking of Tiger Mountain as soon as they came out in Hong Kong and uh, all those uh, movies uh, and uh, his uh, Dragon Tiger Gate and Jet Li movie. Uh. Yeah, I don't remember if we did. I think Kevin might have done Taking of Tiger Mountain because I don't remember. I didn't see that one when it was released cinematically, but um, Dragon Tiger Gate and lots of others um, over the years. And uh, it's still there if you want to give us a listen. It's East Screen, West Screen. And the site is uh, concast.com. You know, with all of that now in the review mirror, kind of, do, do you think Troy Hack is the one that tackled 3D a little bit better than um, other directors, uh, either from Hong Kong or other mainland directors? I can't really address that because I don't like 3D. <laughs> so. And I, I've never watched any of his movies in 3D. I, I just know that, uh, yeah, that's probably 3D. And uh, that's CG Blood, I don't like, but I, I will persevere and they'll finally finish taking a tiger mountain and i did it never computed with me that uh, it's a it's a chinese war movie what does that need to be in 3d but he i guess he's choi hak he's gonna be insistent and uh get get us through it and eventually i got through that movie after not liking the cj blood and the slow motion stuff but eventually i got to see tony lung Fai looking like a bird so i was happy because i i, I really <laughs> when i saw that design design of uh lung Fai. 
he looks like a bird like an, a hawk or an eagle or an owl or something like that and they, it's uh, it's big tony so uh, you gotta love you gotta love that so uh taking of tiger mountain but uh that was uh, in his uh, future back then when making butterfly murders and in 1979 he came back to hong kong and uh, made his uh, mark uh, on uh, on his uh, filmography on hong kong cinema and uh, what would certainly go on to uh, define it uh, but um in the 70s, he didn't fully define it. This was the end of the 70s. 80s was Choi Huck's decade. But we'll get into it. Some music from Butterfly Murders is going to play in your ears right now for 30 seconds or so. And we'll be back to give you a little rundown of what's to come and discuss the film at length. So sit tight and we'll be right back. <laughs> And welcome back. And uh, first, I'll give you a little rundown of what's to come here uh, in our special on the butterfly murder. So uh, first, we'll look a little of um, at Choi Hak's life and career leading up to this film. And uh, we will summarize uh, some uh, remarks by the man making butterfly murders because we have those available to us. Uh, he talked of, you know, being part of the new wave of the 80s. So um, this, uh, he he was part of a group of directors uh, that's, that certainly represented a new wave. So we'll touch a little bit on that. And uh, we'll uh, talk also of the current state of the film, Butterfly Murders, in terms of its film negative. And uh, a, a few notes on the alternate version of uh, the film, even though we can't uh, do that justice without... Uh, displaying it for you as a visual meme but uh, we'll certainly mention the alternate version of the film and then we'll review the actual um, current version of the film and timestamps will be available in the show post so let's get on with it the butterfly murders from 1979 a plot from the hong kong digital review of the film goes as follows the storyline tells us of how the noble shum family was beset by the most unusual threat cloud of blood sucking butterflies which may be the result of a curse. A traveling writer-slash-adventurer Fong, played by Lao Xiuming, respected master Qian Fong, played by Wong Shu Tong, and enthusiastic martial maiden Green Shadow, played by Michelle Yim, arrive at the family's castle and must soon take shelter uh, with them in the catacombs uh, when the insects begin their attacks anew. During a period of calm, the master of the castle instructs his servants to cover the central building with giant nets, keeping the butterflies out, but just as effectively it's all sealing the humans inside. And in spite of this precaution, uh, the creatures invade the castle through air ducts and kill Master Shum um, in his study. And as per instructions in the man's will, a tree of skilled killers called the Thunders are summoned, but their resistance seemed dubious particularly as their arrival coincides with that of a black armor-clad assassin who is stalking the castle corridors. So yeah, we'll uh, break down if that story is effective or not. So a uh, trailblazing and visual master and visual madman, really. Uh, Choi Hak made his directorial debut with The Butterfly Murders. And as John Charles said, quote, Imagine a traditional swordplay adventure with re- uh, restructured like a murder mystery and spiced with horror elements from Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds. So I'm sold already, why wouldn't you watch that film? And uh, I always looked forward to getting a chance to see it, because before the the Hong Kong DVD, we only had a a fully cropped VCD version to watch, and that's not good if you you want uh, clear subtitles and uncropped subtitles. But uh, first, a little on Choi Hak's life and career leading up to this film. And he grew up, as uh, you might know, listeners, in Saigon, Vietnam. And he was drawn to films at, at an early age. He also had the skills of the pen to a degree and would draw his own comic books. And eventually, his family emigrated to uh, Hong Kong. In the mid-60s, he started his secondary education in Hong Kong. And eventually, film studies was the natural fit in the state of Texas. Yeah, he went abroad. First at Southern Methodist University and then at the University of Texas at Austin. 
he graduated in the mid 70s and moved to new york for a while where he worked on the documentary from spikes to spindles uh, on the history of new york's uh, chinatown and he also kept busy being the editor for a chinese newspaper he was part of a developing um uh, he was part of developing a community theater group and had a job at a chinese tv station so not looking to rest anytime soon busy all around and then he returned to hong kong in 1977 and john charles uh, wrote that choi ha caught the eyes of uh, unsi yun's seasonal film uh, corporation of the day saw choi ha's work on the miniseries the gold dagger romance which is based on the novel by famous wuxia author Gu Long. And I might as well stop there. Are you at all familiar with the Gold Dagger romance, either as an adapted uh, TV or film work or written work? No, not familiar with that one. I mean, uh, I know Louis Cha is your, is your man, but still, yep. uh, yeah, you're aware of Gu Long, obviously, through, through movies and writing. I mean, it's probably not a TV miniseries that has been, um, you know, uh, upgraded on home video with the subtitles or on streaming or anything like that. Out of many such works maybe this one is actually lost yeah i wouldn't expect to see this one being reissued anytime soon and uh, it's it's funny that it's a mini series these series were often quite massive you know uh, the condo hero series you know 20 30 40 episodes on and something like that so it that, that uh, miniseries gold dagger romance it was noted for its action scenes and mood and as uh, john charles also notes that it's it's not impossible the visual trickery and style seen in that show distinctly came from Choi Hak, like quick cuts, uh, shock edits, layered sound, and so forth. And uh, such in- influence went into the making of his Wuxia murder mystery, The Butterfly Murders, that was released in uh, July of 1979. And as I mentioned, he, he got lumped into that group of directors that were deemed to represent the new wave of Hong Kong filmmaking. And uh, he, like other colleagues, uh, had been educated abroad, as I said, and historians have deemed their western perspective as key to having an imprint on local films uh, some films were even shot in sync sound and there was a more realistic depiction of society within the group's uh, films uh, even harsh depiction as directors like Choi Hak and An Hoi Alex Chung, Patrick Tam they they, they made genre films yes uh, you know, horror films and so forth but also social films and it led the way into a prosperous decade of uh, Hong Kong cinema but that prosperous decade would arguably change direction multiple times, even by Choi Hak, you know, after the greatest stuff was done, I bring you special effects, and later I bring you a new way a new way of looking at Kung Fu. So uh, I pulled some remarks from the interview Choi Hak did for a French HK video DVD release, and thank- thankfully his session was in English, as uh, Choi Hak is a talker and is super comfortable uh, doing that in English. And he said that his plan wasn't to jump into making films that soon, you know, uh, he, he was doing TV and perhaps easing his way into all of this was his preferred pace. But here came a chance served up by Nsi You know, seasonal film corporation had had hits uh, making uh, Snake and Eagle Shadow and Drunken Master. But uh, here was something that was uh, obviously way different. It wasn't a kung fu comedy. And uh, Nsi saw something in the new director. And uh, Choi Hak started trying to conjure up story treatments. And he was drawn to the stories of the martial world. And there he saw a chance for expansive ideas, uh, including, having hints of, including having hints of science fiction in this historical setting. And uh, he trusted his, like the visual ideas that came to his mind. And he trusted his gut feeling that they were valid and doable as cinematic ideas. Um, and he felt design should be less extravagant, despite the wuxia setting. There, there shouldn't be like no extensive colorful bling bling or uh, he he wanted hairstyles to be more freer and uh, but he wanted a shakespearean focus in the costume department as well and even the way the characters talk stand uh, he he wanted uh, and went for a more theatrical stagey direction by uh, by design and uh, he also enjoyed the feeling of the movie being uh, being that way being stagey he liked exploring the unpredictability of characters uh, from peaceful, good to murderous uh, with uh, animal instincts uh, and uh, he felt strong to all of that and then he combined some of these elements uh, into this, uh, what he feels is a different feel to the Wuxia film and uh, it was kind of hard to convince movie audiences that they should embrace this. It, uh, it was alien to them to see familiar- familiarity play out like this and uh, Fascination with Wuxia exploring, evolving, something very outdated uh, looking. And uh, it, w- it wasn't always the hot genre. 
in Hong Kong cinema, but they, it stuck with him. He wanted to explore the martial world and wuxia film, and it stuck with him throughout the decades, trying to find new ways to make it interesting rather than just make these un- incomprehensible Shaw Brothers type of uh, movies, so where they just uh, just throw story treatments at us for 90 minutes from something that is massive in reality. So he was thinking, just like um, we talked of in an earlier episode with uh, John Wu with uh, Young Dragons, he was also thinking. And uh, it was interesting uh, hearing his uh, retrospective look back on you know his fellow new wave directors and that they were deemed the new wave. Uh, but he talks of that they were drawn to more stories of the city, of society, and uh, uh, but that was more of his way of looking at his fellow other directors because he because he was hanging out in fantasy so he wasn't yet, yet making uh, contemporary stories he was new of course at this time in 1979 he didn't know the ins and outs of uh, making a film but this fresh view allowed for experimentation again his gut feeling so he he injected that in every area in terms of how he saw characters and costumes and action and acting and uh, this was very very much laid down in the script as a foundation but it wasn't a bible Ideas were allowed to come during production, which is obviously how Hong Kong cinema has operated for many years. Uh, um, so he went into production. He was filmed in Taiwan. And uh, not only was that a first for Choi Hak, but a fair amount of his actors were new anyway. And they were dipping uh, their toes into many new things and experimenting with uh, the new kid at the helm. And uh, the content of the butterflies in the story tracks back to um, uh, you know, storytelling, them being symbol of your dreams, uh, purity, love, but Choi Hak saw them as eerie creatures as well. That butterflies could project an eerie feeling. Um, their colors, their pattern hold mystery. And uh, when they're, they're pinned to boards, uh, that implies crucifixion and death and horror. And uh, ultimately, he was contrasting this harmless being to something more damaging. And uh, so he put that into the story, which is a neat experiment. I I, I know they're harmless, but they, they kind of freak me out. <laughs> Butterflies too. And, and when they're gathered up in the hundreds and thousands uh, as they are in this movie, it's, it's very... Uh, I wouldn't want to do what the actors do in this movie. Let's just say that. Uh, all of that, as I talked of, um, the, the contrast in the creatures, that, that sounds like a full theory of this movie. But still, Choi Hak insists that... It was the creation of a kid using his gut feeling, and this is how it came out. They uh, researched butterflies and they spoke to experts because they needed to employ the animals, obviously, for the attack scenes. Uh, but when it came to using them for the film p- purposes and all of that, things got complicated because it's not an animal you can teach to be obedient. You know, sit, stay. Uh, so obviously, they weren't doing what the crew wanted, and uh, out, of the gate, uh, out of the gate, they wouldn't fly. It just looked like a piece of paper on a desk when filming them. You know, there was no life there. And they had been transported to the set for hours, so they weren't itching to be active. They were docile. Then they all found out that they weren't safely transported, necessarily. They, they, they would fly around in um, in the box that they were transported in and get wounded after maybe being panicked in there. So when they flew, Paul, it was short-lived. They had to put some safety measures in place to make this work. Um, the butterflies had to have water a day before they were needed. And uh, to make sure they kept flying for the shots, uh, the crew would use fans to keep them in the air, which I'm sure the animals liked very much. Uh, they managed to do at most maybe 30 second takes of uh, the flying butterflies uh, flying butterflies that way. And uh, suffice to say that this was a physical strain on the crew having to reset for multiple takes with uh, the butterflies so uh, but still they took responsibility responsibility for um, for animals and their, their safety on Hong Kong uh, sets it's not um, it's not necessarily common but uh, here they they, they, they needed to uh, be a sellable element you know uh, interesting unlike John Wu who we talked about on the last uh, on the episode on the the young dragons you know and his uh, affinity for uh, using uh, the doves or the pigeons or the birds, you know, uh, this was something that I think uh, director Soy Hark quickly learned not to do again. <laughs> it is interesting because what he does with the butterflies is he flips them on their head, um, you know, because prior to this, the butterfly is this very, the symbol of romance, you know, in Hong Kong literature with the butterfly lovers, which is one of the four great sort of um, folktale literature pieces, which he has done and which has been done and and redone, you know, prior to this. So 
coming up to this, you, you, he's taking this this symbol that is of you know rebirth, uh, love, reincarnation, romance, and all of that that goes with it. And he's saying, no, I'm going to make it into something that is that is quite the opposite. So that's an interesting position to take. And going back to um, the tag that he and fellow young directors got as uh, you have a new wave, you kids. Uh, Choi Hacker remembers a conversation he had with Anne Hoy where he asked her, what are we supposed to do and make? What is expected out of us? We're trying to be filmmakers, of course, but we have no idea how to spot the differences between us and the old guard, you know, the established filmmakers and what we have in common, if common, if anything. And uh, he came to the conclusion that you know, at the time, that this isn't a new wave, it's just us and our instincts. Uh, a new wave suggests a mapped-out philosophy or a concept behind it that signals change, you know, change in film language and stories and content, but we we didn't see we were changing anything, he said. Uh, we were new kids on the block, and honestly, as, as, as he also said, we weren't reinventing style necessarily. Our filming techniques were entirely conventional. Maybe the difference was that we filmed more on real locations, there was a different sense to the editing, but otherwise techniques were super common. And if really said, I certainly wasn't the one having an epiphany about what we were doing as the new wave. We have a new wave, gather around, we got we got work to do, we're now the trailblazers or anything. Because uh, it really makes sense, as he talked of, that I couldn't see outside of myself in 1979 or 1980 and what we were doing. But but what we uh, were doing, we, we we were new. We were coming from TV and abroad, but we were trying stuff out. We, we were experimenting and not everything landed. But one thing is for sure, Butterfly Murders came out of that experimental mentality. And you can't capture that pioneering, call it pioneering, naive, ignorant feeling again. Um, he, he knows it's his debut film, but he sums up that session that we watched that it doesn't feel complete. It's uh, It doesn't feel full. So it can't be my first movie, my full movie. But, you know, what movie uh, can be argued to be full? So uh, he, he he's self-critical, but he doesn't dismiss it to anything. It's just that that's uh, it might look and feel, and it, it's a feature-length movie, but it's not uh, a complete vision because uh, I didn't know anything about uh, coming off and making a complete uh, movie as a filmmaker. So it's, uh, it's interesting to look at, and I'm glad he remembers so much about... Uh, uh, about the specific production challenges, but 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 also being such a noted and a highlighted director like he and Anne Hoy and Patrick Tam were, no wonder, Paul, that you sort of ask yourself, like, I mean, we're kids. What do we know? I mean, they're they're they're, they're saying stuff about us, but can you identify with that? I don't, I don't know. Can you? No, I don't know. What are you making? This. It's social. It's more realistic. I, I think sound, but it's not like. Oh, I've had a new wave idea, Choi Hak. And, and I really like that, that. Of course we can't say that about ourselves. Um, so seeing it complete, though, Butterfly Murders in widescreen and all of that, that was a problem for a while, because um, when it made its tour of duty on Hong Kong Home Video, it at best, before the DVD, had a partially widescreen version on Laserdisc, uh, with uh, the side break apparently being preceded by an ad for an amusement park. So... You couldn't continue the movie as the laser disc flipped. No, we're gonna tell you where to go as a fam when this movie is over. So, and then we cut to Choi Hak's amusement parking process, I suppose. Uh, when it hit Hong Kong VCD, it was now fully cropped, and this is a, a full scope movie 2.35 to 1. So, the subtitles were incredibly hard to read if you saw this on VCD and were in need of uh, subtitles. So, I, I never pursued it because. Uh, a complex wuxia story and you can see uh, just a percentage of the subtitles I'll, I'll, i'd rather wait and uh, and indeed i did the film aired subtitled in mandarin and in widescreen on uk television at uh, one point uh, the 90s uh, possibly and this was a longer version of the film it's deemed to be a bit of an extended version for taiwan it, it's like runs a few minutes longer than a hong kong dvd um it doesn't make that much sense to speak of it on a, pod, on a podcast without illustrations. So we'll, we'll link to the movie.censorship.com's visualized report. Because uh, the TV version we have, it doesn't look very good. But the German version, which is a different edit in itself, was actually based on the extended version. But, but was cut differently. But what they had for the report was clearer looking screenshots of the extended Taiwanese footage uh, so it's a uh, really neat but um, they, they, they cut together a, a specific German edition uh, when it was released uh, there 
do check that out because there there is some um, interesting stuff there. I mean, in general, I would say that it contains a few more explanatory passages, I think. But looking back at the Hong Kong version we have now, I didn't feel like details were lost necessarily. Uh, there's a few more things with Lao Xiu Ming as he speaks out loud of uh, what, what is happening. A, f- a few more events are elaborated on, but I, I don't know if you viewed it in full. But regardless, I, I didn't feel like, oh, oh my God, this makes the movie totally more, much more clearer now that we see the extended Taiwanese footage. I, I felt like, uh, yeah, it was neat to have. And it wouldn't have slowed down the movie considerably, considerably but... Um, um, it, it, it's fine in the Hong Kong cut as it is now. Uh, so did you screen it, as a matter of fact, that uh, longer version? Yeah, but it was uh, harder to watch. <laughs> yeah, you, you, at, at least you had the subtitles. I and mean, if you watch it side by side, you, you can sort of uh, get an appreciation for uh, what it is uh, doing and the, the few minutes of the new scenes uh, and things like that. But um so it's also worth mentioning that the state of the film, the physical condition of the film, isn't that particularly stellar. And who knows if that's going to change. Uh, I mean, we've had a couple of DVD releases in anamorphic widescreen. It has optional subtitles, newly found clarity that wasn't there before. So we could appreciate the film's vis- visual style. But like other seasonal film corporation catalog entries like Legend of a Fighter, these negatives have taken a beating over the years. They've had they've gone through chemical deterioration, so the film has a green tint to it, but also quite grave yellow staining, in particularly visible during daytime scenes. I've never had a problem with it, but it really does seem to connect to how seasonal store their films. So Snake and Eagle Shadows and Drunken Masters seem to have fared better, but the newer home video presentations of that are sometimes. Um, they have their origins uh, from Western sources. So, you know, the Blu-rays for Snake and Eagle Shadow and Drunken Master, I think, actually came, the, the main prints come from America. So the staining isn't um, isn't there necessarily. Uh, but I, I don't have a problem with that because uh, it's not like the movie is uh, completely, uh, you know, uh, uh, the footage is there and we can appreciate uh, what's happening. But it's uh, just uh, a, an example of uh, Hong Kong movies aren't stored across the board, uh, as they should. And um, it applies to this movie, but can you get over su- such a thing uh, and enjoy the movie despite the massive amount of staining that you see sometimes? Yeah, I can. I mean, I, I don't... I've seen films in worse condition, for sure. And it doesn't take away from the film's overall quality in my book. I mean, it, we live in an age where I, I think they definitely have the technology to go in and, and fix this stuff, but depending on who has the rights, I mean, and... I do think that based on interviews I've read with the director, Tsui Hark himself, he's not a big fan of his old films. He's happy to talk about them, though. Yeah, he's happy to talk about them, but he doesn't, I mean, he, he, even like, you know, he, he will look at something like Zoo and and kind of uh, be down on it, you know, because he's like, oh, it, it, in retrospect, it, I guess he looks it looks worse to him. Um, than the stuff he does these days, which, which as a as a creative person, I think a lot of creative people can relate to that. You know, your early work, you look at it and just kind of shake your head. And maybe he has the rights, or maybe a studio has the rights, and they just don't think it's worth the time, money, and effort to go back and restore this stuff. Which is a shame because this is a film that I think is a considerable part of Hong Kong cinema history, and it would be great to have a, a wonderfully restored version to it. And I mean, I would love to just get the Hong Kong Laserdisc, just so I could see the amusement park park ad. <laughs> yeah, you, you wonder if that was an amusement park that uh, was thriving at the time and was open for 20 more years uh, or whatever. But um, but yeah, and it, it being partially widescreen, that, that would help. Uh, but um, I don't know, I, I, I haven't scanned uh, eBay like daily for it, but I would pick it up in a heartbeat because it would be viewable in like 1.85 framing. Even with you would have some cropped out subtitles, but um, so I, I would view it that way absolutely. Um, so yeah, let me do my brief opinion and I'll throw over to you because um, uh, if this is a guy using his gut instinct, then like the middle finger to Choi Hark, like I, I want gut instinct like this because this is good. <laughs> you know, I'm just experimenting and using my gut instinct, and it turns out like this because I'm very fond of this uh, film. I often get lost in these wuxia films and their complex plots. And there's, of course, often a visual element or two to connect to, you know, the frenzy of uh, the visual tapestry and all of that. But the story just flies over my head. But um, 
this one is different. The, the said combo of animal horror and murder mystery uh, amidst its flying martial arts heroes, that, that's super cool. And there is a frantic sense of images here from th that would apply to future Choi Hark as well. But a lot, it's actually very coherent and sharp and skillful. It's visually interesting, even if it's set in like the underground most of the time. And it's such a cool premise. Uh, it's an underground set mystery. Uh, so there's nothing really grand here. Does it? It's not a colorful wuxia. And again, it's surprisingly easy to follow, and I kind of adore it. I, I think Choi Hak is a very cool filmmaker anyway. And uh, to to say to yourself and the world, like, he made a killer butterfly movie. It it's kind of makes it a must-see, and thankfully, it's a bit of a winner. So I've, uh, I've, uh, I've always enjoyed it, and uh, finally I could on its proper terms, really, when it had like a mid-2000s uh, local Hong Kong DVD release, so still like it. Um, so, what about you? Uh, what do you think in short of the Butterfly Murders? No, I like it a lot. I'm a huge fan of Soy Hark movies in general. Um, I've always liked his style, and I think elements of his style you can trace all the way back to this early film. And one of the things he said in making this film was that you know they they were using everything practical. It was all practical effects for the most part. Um, real butterflies, real fires and, and things for the, for the special effects. And um, in one interview, he said a friend came to him later and, sa and said, why are you using all this practical real stuff? Why don't you use special effects? And then he thought to himself, hmm, yeah, that would probably be easier. And, and I think that's when he got really a big interest in going the special effects route. And then you see that, you know, he, they, they tap into getting some people to come over and teach them Western style special effects for his later features. And, you know, I think his openness uh, to to embracing that and to, to sort of bringing that over and making that his own is what makes him um, a very unique director. And we've talked about before, you know, he's also embraced newer cinema technologies, especially 3D. I'm not a big fan of 3D, but he's one of the few Hong Kong directors who really, really tried to take it on it and utilize it and to to push boundaries with it with Hong Kong cinema. Um, so you got to get him, give him credit for that. It's interesting, too, because when you talk about his grouping with this sort of new wave of directors like Patrick Tam and Anne Hoy, not that he's an and he's not an art director, but he really, I think, fit more into the commercial realm of things, especially when you get into uh, the the convening of cinema city um and what they call the sort of the, the gang of seven so if you're not familiar cinema seven cinema city was a big production house um that had seven heads basically it was Stoy hark um his then wife nansen she uh carl makadinchek raymond wong teddy robin and eric zhang all names if you followed hong kong cinema through the the 80s and 90s that should be familiar and they were kind of recreating the rules of cinema for Hong Kong in terms of style, pacing, comedy, budgets, and all these things um, from this era. He sort of came out of this new wave and 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 got very firmly rooted with this this sense of more commercialized cinema um, with Cinema City, though he still has his own very distinct style, whereas you see Anne Hoy and Patrick Tam kind of they still stay on their own roads, you know, with forging their own paths, not really as indie directors, but really in in more of that uh, festival house sort of art circuit, slightly less commercial world. He only essentially made a one of those gritty, angry so, uh, social movie um, movie. He made one of those, but it's a it's a big, impactful one. It's it's, it's a nasty one, the dangerous encounter first kind. A.K. Don't play with fire. That's his angry. You know, shot on real location and, uh, you know, concern for society and it's violent and it's nihilistic. Uh, but then the f movie after that, because he, he says in the interview for that film, um, I wanted to do comedy after that. So he did, you know, he did all, all, all the wrong clues after that. And uh, his uh, second movie, We're Going to Eat You, is his um, cannibal kung fu comedy satire thing. And, and that I know he doesn't like because he feels like, nah, I, I mean, ideas, yeah, but not really properly executed and uh so even a movie after this is he's still not you know aligning himself with uh, uh making socially conscious films or anything or rooted films uh, so so it's a, it's interesting he, he dipped into that and then 
his new wave era, era was kind of over after that. Um, and uh, you had all the Clues and Sue coming up uh, after that. In short, uh, do, do, do you think this uh, comes off as resembling anything you like from other wuxia film authors or doesn't feel or, or does it feel different versus you know the Louis Cha work is a is there an easy way to sort of say that uh, oh yeah this is totally go along or Louis Cha or, or Louis Cha I don't think you can pigeonhole it exactly but there are definitely elements I mean the the way the societies are structured and the way that you have uh, sort of these characters who are brought in that seemingly have significant histories that are just alluded to and you only get a few more details of them as they go on um so you know the the Wang Shutong character is sort of the the Tianlong clan leader the the three thunders you know those all have elements that feel like you know um they they belong from those genres or are pulled from those genres and I'm a I'm guessing that probably comic books of the time that were reflect, you know, were reflecting these stories or trying to do a similar kind of story were dealing with characters like this. I mean, Michelle Yim's character of Green Shadow is kind of this mysterious figure who shows up who seems to know nothing but then displays that she kind of knows more than she does of what's going on kind of thing. Um, that's also another kind of tropey element um, that that's often placed within characters of these stories. I think there's definitely a lot there that he's pulling from, um, but it's also very much his own. Um, the, the budget at times, it's clear that there are budgetary constraints. And as you mentioned, you know, a lot of this is shot in kind of like these small rooms or underground caves, but I think he uses it effectively um, with some, you know, the occasional exterior shots and, and location shots because I, if I remember correctly, they were shooting mostly in Taiwan, right, for this. And so I think there's, you know, an effective use of that. And then you take all of that and you say, I'm going to make Clue, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then it becomes something very, very different and unique. And again, like with the butterfly, you, he, he's flipping things on their head. You know, um, it's not that they didn't have murder mysteries in the wuxia world necessarily but this take on it i think was was very unique it, it's very entertaining there's one aspect of it that doesn't work for me very well but i think i'll talk about that a little bit later after we get a bit more into it and and also the, it should be noted that uh, he handles the coherency aspect quite well in my eyes uh, this isn't one of those frantic choyun like wuxia films of the late 70s where they just drop characters at us 20 in five minutes and we're forced to deal with it but as soon as we think we deal with it well a new character drops in and a couple of new twists and turns now he's setting up the world quite well thanks to Lao Xiu Ming as the as the narrator but but that works because he's a storyteller he's uh, documenting the martial worlds uh, events of the martial world so there's your excuse for having exposition but it's not like he's the solution to get Choi Hak out of incoherency I, I really like having Lao Xiu Ming as this external uh, observer because he's not a martial hero he's a writer He's kind of a detective, you know, precursor to Detective D in a very loose, loose way. Um, so I, I was glad that uh, throughout his, uh, his letting us into this and, uh, you know, so it's not just for, for the established audience or anything. I mean, it, it's certainly a fairly lively frame. It's not a stoic martial arts uh, frame uh, but uh, he's 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 really good at s setting up the different eras that the world this world has gone through including that it's an era of struggle i, I think it's hinted at that people are digging up tombs of royals to see if uh, the rumors are true that these tombs contain uh, treasures and there's a plot plot point that i believe the father of the master shum is said to have done this and that might have uh, set off a family curse or something like that um, then he starts playing with cliched tension good cliched tension with uh, the butterflies you know at one point uh, people are digging up uh, maybe one of the tombs and you have classic stuff like did you hear something no it's just the wind and then we cut to the peril and it's the butterflies 
and that makes me sit up and watch but they're, they're kind of eerie shots paul of them covering all the trees the, the butterflies are idle before they attack and it's never really cheesy to me when the uh, the actors have to you know thrash about on the ground oh my god they're killing me because it seems like they have a few like fake butterflies attached to them and uh, fake blood but it seems like they had to perform within scenes of tons of these it kind of works as uh, murder scenes um i i found it quite uh, fetching and clearly choi harkin makers had to have patience to get this done and uh, i i really think uh, you know the animal horror is uh, is neat um eerie and neat and cool that it exists at all and uh, talk about a kid making it difficult for himself in his first uh, first movie so it's moody um he uses lighting well and it's a it's a case of it's not always butterflies in your face it's not you know it, it, it's a it's a case of less is more so that the way he uses it i think sets the scenes very very well it's not like oh here's a flying piranha that's gonna run around and bite you on the nose or something that they're doing it to create mood and it they're as much a part of the mystery as the mystery itself, you know, and without spoiling it, there's a lot that ends up getting revealed about everything and, and how it's happening. So the questions are answered, you know, it's, it's, and I think it's an interesting uh, unveiling as, as part of the process. And it sounds to me like you didn't pick up on any, incoherency issues where he dumps way too much on us and twists and turns because I I thought it was quite measured and it was explained well to us without being without Lao Xiu Ming being a Mr. Exposition in a in a in an ill way or anything no yeah I I I do think that it it handles the the mystery it handles the explanation well pushes the characters into the right places the the one thing that I think for this film that doesn't work for me is that there's a MacGuffin here that is kind of the, the the rationale behind everything and why people are doing what they're doing. And I just think that MacGuffin is dumb. <laughs> in, in, in the scope of everything, you have characters in this martial world who are doing fantastical things you know in another genre this would this might be considered magic right some of the things that these these characters can do and while he doesn't lean too far into that direction it's still the MacGuffin that gets revealed just makes you go really Uh, that's that's what this is all about just that thing (laughs) so um but beyond that I think that you know it's it's got some great interplay between the different characters, you know, Wong Shu Tung walking around and posing at times, and he's got, uh, you know, a cape and and stuff. You know, the other character, the Thunders, show up and they've got capes, and it's some great exposition. I and it, it's that moody style that you come to know director Hark for. He's got a certain aesthetic. If you like that, you don't get a lot of it here, but you get sort of the foundational elements here. That you'll go on to see later and stuff like zoo and um, Chinese ghost story and things like that. Yeah, I, I agree on the on the um, on the characters that inhabit this. There are some very distinct looks and faces. Uh, Wong Xiu Tong, you know, his cape and the crazy hair, and he, he's also the film's action director, Wong Xiu Tong. And Michelle Yim, I think, is a, a cutie pie, but uh, obviously looks distinct too, uh, distinct as well. Yeah, so there, there, there's something about them being visual elements to the faces, not necessarily their uh, uh, their costuming, their colorful costuming, and uh, and I do like the mood of uh, where they cast like uh, suspicion on the independent observer, Lao Xiu Ming being the reason for the killings, and uh, uh, and he is uh, not uh, you know panicked by this at all. He's taking it in stride and doing his investigation and uh, and exploring the, the catacombs and. Uh, and, and and that the Wuxia world is talking about this being the new threat, you know, butterflies. Uh, it's a different buzz, I think, to the genre versus the other killing that they're used to in this world. I can't remember many many of these Wuxia stories having killed butterflies. So it, it, it has a cool element to it. And, and the setting of the castle, when we get those external shots, this uh, run-down, abandoned, dead 
and it's constantly windy that environment it's, it's very cool and uh, it crafts curiosity what they're called to something that seems dead and gone it might be a setting that's actually not better than a sort of tv production standards uh that, that setting but when you rough it up and empty it and frame it around this cause of being uh, being empty and possibly cursed i think it creates a very cool feeling so it uses his environment uh, uh, very well and, and and i also think that there, there's a style and pace of dialogue and that staging that uh, tracks back to what he was saying that uh, he, he seemed to want to vary up the uh, dialogue scenes where people are they got their backs against each other as they theorize and sometimes the camera is is uh, is above characters as they theorize what is going on at one point i think michelle yim is looking into the camera as well so he's um making some choices here without taking uh, taking us out of it and, and, and it's kind of a year or two before we get into the underground uh, uh, you, you see the mute character just standing on the other side of the courtyard sort of ob- observing and uh, you know they expect it to be empty and there's one person there so, so that adds to a mystery uh, as well and um, it's really not a bad budget solution to need to get uh, to underground or anything uh, because uh, it's visually interesting enough uh, with some cool uh, cinematography and uh, you know they're they're very unidentifiable it's an unidentifiable sort of maze here but i think it could have been dangerous to just keep us there for uh, two or three reels before we get outside again but i think it really pulls that off and it makes it interesting to follow um, the mystery that doesn't feel to me like every other wuxia story ever told it, it didn't feel like a, a recycled sort of a condor heroes thing or anything go long uh, uh, ever wrote so uh, these films have every uh, opportunity to be that because uh, sometimes as we discussed before these stories are known to the public anyways so no one cares if we dump you know 50 volumes into one movie because uh, we all know this but uh, this story we don't it's seemingly seemingly unoriginal so i, I guess you can't be uh, dumping 50 twists and turns on us in five minutes and expect to get away with it and i'm, I'm very grateful for that because um, i wanted to get in get into this i wanted to get into first uh Choi Huck's first um first film and uh, i mean do, do 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 you think you have an advantage be, being such a fan of uh, wuxia film and tv and writing that even when there's twists galore you you kind of keep up by this point because you're uh, familiar with uh, all the condor hero stuff and the store and the type of storytelling or or does wuxia still get difficult for you sometimes no i mean i think it just depends on the the story and the director and 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 their style more than anything it's such a big genre that and even within even within the scope of something you're familiar with like if you you know somebody comes along and does a a, a new version of uh, condor heroes or uh, heaven sword dragon saber you know you may not like it you may not like the cast that they've chosen you may not like the the style they're going for in terms of the the aesthetic look and the feel but you know because you're you you may already have a favorite you know um, that, that you grew up with. And so that kind of set the standard. So uh, a new look, a new vision, you know, may not appeal to you. It has an action director to film, as we mentioned, uh, cast member Wong Xiu Tong. Um, so it, it sort of, it picks its moments rather than uh, having a steady stream of action. I think that that's by design because um, they need to figure this out and it's not, they don't figure it out through constant uh, fighting and uh, flying or anything. So, uh, he gets to have certain spots of uh, action, but uh, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, it's it, it certainly is uh, wire assisted, but that's literally the armored man's out of the armored man's uh, box of tricks that he has sort of a uh, zipline system uh, or a pulley or something like that that he uses. So they aren't flying necessarily. They're they're using they're, they're using wires. They're using rope uh, essentially and. Uh, he mixes that Wong Shutong with more grounded uh, exchanges that they are trying to kill each other through beating rather than uh, using animal weapons or any type of magic. Uh, and that was compelling to me that uh, 
it, it's uh, it's a world where that isn't a dominant force that you can just throw energy bolts at each other. Yeah, there's a practical side to it that that he you know again it even though it's very, it's still unrealistic for the era you know these these sort of Batman style grappling pulleys that the characters are using and whatnot, but it's used in such a way that you just kind of like go with it. I, I think one of the one of the thunders is known for using fire technique and you know it, it's they're they're still like with detective d right there's there's sort of a a, mis, a mysterious nature to it but there's also a lot of practicality that they try to infuse into it so it rides that kind of balance and with with wong shu tong's character you know and i don't know if this was his choice or if it came from the director you know how how they work this out but he uses basically a billy club as a weapon, which is not a typical weapon you get in a lot of, you know, wuxia or, or martial arts films. You know, typically it's swords or spears or even staffs, you know, but just to have a small like <laughs> like little billy club, like you're going to go out and, you know, uh, knock somebody on the back of the head. But it's still effective. I mean, it, it and it it goes along with the character by by the end of the film. You're like, yeah, you know, it's like it just works. They are not always flying around settings as we said they're, they're rather they're thrashing settings you know there's a fight in the butterfly room that, that certainly feels more messy martial arts like than uh, than from a wuxia film and so they're 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 the different scenarios here not uh, not not a forced frequency of um, of action or anything and i think yeah, it's it's neatly um it, it's neatly put together um, not always uh, they, they can't do a lot in each edit sometimes the flying needs to be a little bit cut up but um, i think it it shows um, some instincts from both sides here from both choi hak and his action director wong shu tong to make uh, each scenario be uh, be involving you know when the armored man enters that they where they where they can't penetrate his armor and uh, no amount of uh, slashing or beating will uh, will have an effect uh, will have an effect on him so there there there's a good intensity to that desperation that, that we can't we can't get to this guy whoever he, whoever he is and uh, mixed with the that mystique of uh, the butterflies that um, might or might not be controlled uh, by someone it it makes it all very distinctive and uh, cool and uh, and unusual the kind of drawback i guess is that but maybe it's Usha storytelling tradition is that we're not really meant to be feeling for this character so whenever someone does bite the dust uh, out of the main core it's not like uh, it's play for emotions or anything it's um the the martial world at one point needs to do its thing and they do which is uh, an interesting choice towards the end of the film i won't spoil it but essentially one character leaves because people doesn't need to take part in, in this anymore and the martial world needs to do its thing whether rational or not we come back to clan uh, clan feuds and all of that but it it still leads to um, a, a very physical and uh, grounded way of depicting this and a bit more messier a bit more gritty and he has uh, select uh, select sort of uh, wuxia film and tv storytelling uh, elements like the magic fire crow which is just choi hak shooting a bird flying around for a bit <laughs> and, and solving it and editing but damn it man i, I thought it was uh, thought it was cool the way he uh, because because of the way he um, showcases that bird's power which was yeah <laughs> was, wow now it is the birds or the bird but um, but yeah, so so through editing and uh, throwing a bird around, we get some um, we get some wuxia film magic, and uh, I was very satisfied uh, conceptually, even if uh, it might not have seemed like this is gonna work when throwing around that bird on set. It's like, does anyone know where it is? Catch it, catch it. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, it uh, it makes me happy this film that it exists, yeah, and that he um, he might not argue again as we talk, talked of that it's anywhere near complete. It doesn't feel like a full movie. But I, I really feel it's a good, good, distinctive, cool start, and and this wasn't his uh, mission to make these movies for for ten years. Maybe he went with his gut instinct that now we're doing Chinese ghost story stuff, and now I need to bring back Wong Fei Hong, and now 3D is my thing. So 
you never know sometimes with um, Choi Hak. But um, that's what makes him uh, a favorite of mine uh, across the board. And sometimes we get uh, we get uh, working class, you know, from the director of the Butterfly Murders, working class, and that <laughs> makes that makes me happy as well. Uh, so I, f- I think I'll conclude uh, my notes uh, right there. So anything else you want to say about the Butterfly Murders? No, I just think it's a you know it's a favorite of mine, um, along with many of his films. And uh, I hope one day to get a hold of the LD so I can see that uh, theme park ad. <laughs> well, we'll uh, I'll try and uh, try and uh, we'll, we'll, I'm gonna outbid you, Paul. <laughs> I'll, I'll get you. I'll get you first. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's not one of those like it's a Maya or Universe LD. I think it's from one label that uh, we don't see their releases uh, that frequently. But uh, but yeah, do keep an eye out for it. It's with Maya, or well, was at any rate, uh, because uh, the, the DVD was put out by uh, Maya, so they held uh, the print at one point, and maybe they still do. But uh, that DVD released in mid-2000s, something like that, it's now out of print, and there's no sign of a Blu-ray or a digital edition currently. Didn't you say it was on Amazon or Prime or something like it that? It was. It was a... Because <clears throat> I first watched it uh, a couple years ago uh, digitally on Amazon, and it was there, but you know, as with many things, they take it off. Mm. I wonder if that was... Uh, properly official or not because stuff go up on amazon where that's not legal you know the wu-tang collection presents moon warriors <laughs> therefore not legal but uh hey if it's there then uh, uh and if you could see it at least uh, at that time then it's not your not your job to um to screen these things for legality so uh but yeah the dvd edition i mentioned from me uh, i saw it go for nearly 200 us dollars second hand so don't you know, don't overpay for one single movie. I granted I overpaid for the French DVD set that contains this, We're Going to Eat You, and the two versions of Dangerous Encounter First Kind, but uh, 200 for a single film is silly. And I had the Hong Kong DVDs for Butterfly Murders and We're Going to Eat You, so I obviously had subtitled versions of uh, those two, and I also had access to a custom version of uh, Dangerous Encounter First Kind, where, where I could see both the uh, theatrical censored version and the uh, first version the director's cut if you will so um I, I wanted that set because i think it's really special and very cool that someone went to the lengths of getting Troy hack to sit down for sessions on butterfly murders and not for we're going to eat you and and then a lengthy session on dangerous encounter to really give us making of details that that, that are not common that are not uh, out there and um, i'm very happy that he um that he does uh share and is honest about uh, his work at the same at the same time so uh uh, so maybe we'll get to that um, those um, uh, the rest of those uh, first three at some point. We're going to eat you. Is, uh, it's it's interesting, but uh, it doesn't pan out necessarily. Uh, the, the satire on the the social commentary about communism mixed with this kung fu cannibal movie. I'm not sure. Um, it's the weaker of the first three, definitely. But um, interesting. I mean. You, you kind of need to watch it once, like Choi Hak's Cannibal Kung Fu Comedy. Okay. I'm in. <laughs> one, of, one of the few I haven't seen, just because of the, the cannibal label. It's not uh, particularly uh, uh, violent at all, actually. It's, uh, it leans more towards uh, goofy, and uh, it's not a hardcore gore film or anything like that. Uh, mm. uh, it's got some good Kung Fu, though. But um, no, um, it misses more than it hits. And Choi Hak... Uh, did uh, I, I read the book by like the cinema of Choi Hak? Uh, I bought it digitally uh, by Lisa something, Lisa Horton, Lisa Morton, and uh, there are some comments by Choi Hak about that. Where nope, didn't work. So he was uh, honest about that. Anyway, hope uh, the Butterfly Murders gets uh, put into circulation again with a reissue or uh, that secondhand prices go down. But uh, but yeah, here we are uh, at this point anyway. This is uh, us for this episode. For all your Podcast on Fire network needs, uh, go to podcastonfire.com, check out the bonus episodes and the rest of the archive where we cover Japanese cinema and Korean cinema and the likes. And uh, all relevant links will be in the show post. And follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And uh, get the podcast uh, wherever you get podcasts, iTunes uh, or Apple Podcasts, uh, Stitcher, Spotify. So... That is me, so why don't uh, why don't you plug your podcast archive as well and go look for the Choi Hack coverage over at East Screen West Screen. Yep, it is East Screen West Screen, and you can find us over at concast.com. 
And that is us for this uh, particular episode, filling in uh, a little gap in uh, a director's filmography. We started at the beginning of Choi Hak's uh, magical, mystical, uh, mystical tour of the uh, of the Wuxia film. So, uh, uh, thank you, Paul, for participating. And uh, yeah, I've been Kenobi, and uh, with me was Paul Fox of the East Screen West Screen Podcast. Thank you, and bye bye.